All right, grab a Bible and open it with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. As you're turning there, I do want to spend some time praying together, asking the Lord to continue His work of transformation and change in our hearts and lives. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, even as I was waking up this morning and came into the building, I was able to see the beauty and the glory of your sunrise, the crisp coolness of fall, and also the changes of the leaves and the colors and the seasons. And Lord, it was so refreshing, and I was reminded of the God who While you change not, you don't change. You're always the same. Lord, it's your promise of grace that you won't leave me that way. Because I need change. Lord, we all need change. And Lord, the changing of the seasons is, is just a shout from creation of this tremendous promise that you will change us. You will make us more like Jesus. And Lord, that's what I need. And that's what everyone here needs. Lord, we need to be more like Christ. Lord, we thank you. That is the promise for those who trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Is that the one who began a good work in us will be faithful and just to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you finished what you started And Lord, I pray for all of us who are in the midst of our own change and our relationship with Jesus as you work on our hearts to to get out the things that don't need to be there and put in the things that do need to be there in our souls, Lord, that we would trust the process, trust your work. And Lord, know that one day it will be completed when we see Jesus face to face. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see every day with courage and encouragement knowing that you will change us, you will equip us, you will make us more like Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for your promise. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. Speak to us as we open your word. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 15 and reading through verse 31. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit these words. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down to get the things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in winter or on Sabbath, for at that time there will be great distress, the kind that hasn't take place from the, taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. Until those day, unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But, for the, but those days will be cut short because of the elect. If anyone tells you then see here is the messiah or over there do not believe it 
For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you in advance, so if they tell you, see, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. Or see, he's in the storerooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Where the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is so powerful and it speaks to us. And Lord, we don't have to guess about what is coming. But Lord, we simply rest and trust in your truth and in your words. And we long for your appearing. We pray, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in the meantime, help us to persevere in your truth. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1975, 46 years ago, this month, Carl F.H. Henry said the following. He said, Western civilization is coming completely unglued. Sounds like it could be said today. (laughs) Those who seem least aware of its pending collapse are, number one, politicians (laughs) with vested interests in promising a better tomorrow. (laughs) Number two, philosophers who, despite a dismal record, keep drawing up blueprints of utopia. (laughs) Number three, stockbrokers whose livelihood depends upon marketing a bright future. Scientists seem more realistic about the world slide. They speak even of the human end of human history through their alarm centers in matters like atmospheric pollution, the prospect of nuclear destruction, limited natural resources, and possible famine in an overpopulated world. Henry goes on to say, what it all adds up to is this gloomy fact that For all of its promise of bright tomorrows, scientific technology will itself crumble in the ashes of a society that abandons ethical and religious concerns. As the world in the last quarter of the 20th century divests itself of belief in God and His revelation in and in redemptive renewal, it is left without any clear understanding of the meaning of life. It therefore plummets towards pervasive melancholy and despair. A remnant that believes in God and his purpose in history will be left to carry the moral fortunes of a dispirited race. 46 years ago, you could say the same thing over 2021. You could say the same thing over today, a prophetic voice speaking to us, even from the grave, so to speak, as he is now 
to, as, he, as Carl F. H. Henry is now with the Lord. Those are, there are some who think that with science and technology that we can advance our society. That if we just had the right research, if we just had the right funding for the right research, that one day through science and technology and through what is coming out of the laboratory, that we would be able to establish within this world this incredible utopia where everyone will be just wonderful and society will be like your best life now. But we know that the more sophisticated our science gets, the more ways we just have in doing evil to one another, and really the more sophisticated our ways of killing one another have become. That is the result of a society that is depraved and says no, 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 no to the things of God. They keep saying no to the things of our Lord. Last week we began talking about how Christ is coming again. We've been talking about the end times. And today we're going to continue our study here in Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew 25 on the end times. And we will find that society is not headed towards some type of utopia immediately. One day Jesus will return and he is coming again. He will set up his rule and reign. He will set up his kingdom in this world. But until we get to that time, we find that things are going to go from bad to worse. That things are going to get more and more difficult as time marches on, as time progresses into the future. Here in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is answering two questions of the disciples. Question number one is, when will the temple be destroyed? And question number two is, what is the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Now, Christians have looked at the answers to these questions in various different ways throughout history. And last week, I put it in your notes. I put it in the notes again. I wanted to show it to you here on the screen this week. And here is a chart that kind of shows you what the end times looks, looks like. Now, this comes from a particular perspective. And I said last week that my perspective was really a premillennial perspective that Jesus comes before the millennium. Jesus comes before his thousand-year reign. And so we see that the timeline of history is as follows. You have Old Testament Israel, then you have Christ. You have, you have the gospel. You have Jesus comes, lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, rises, rises again from the grave. Then after that, you have what's called the church age. That's the era that we live in right now. The church age, the age of the church, the age of evangelism, the age of the spread of the gospel. But then there is coming a point when we will begin this era called the tribulation. Others call it the great tribulation. And at that time, there will be a seven-year period. It's called in the scripture, it's called Jacob's Trouble, or it's called the, the Day of the Lord, using various different ways to describe it. But that is a seven-year period predicted by scripture at the end of the ages when humanity will get to reap what it has sown. And society will be shown what happens when man decides to live as if Jesus isn't king and God gives us over to the results and the reaping of our own sinfulness and our own depravity as society just completely falls apart. And then after the seven-year tribulation, there is the second coming of Christ 
And then that ushers in the thousand-year reign of Jesus, known as the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. At the end of that, there is one final rebellion demonstrating the hostility of sinful man against even a Christ that is ruling and reigning here in this world. And then we will enter in, after the great white throne of judgment, we will enter into the eternal state, heaven and hell. Those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will spend an eternity with Christ in heaven. Those who have rejected Jesus, who did not trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, will spend an eternity separated from God in hell. You can see why it is utterly essential that you trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Trust in Him today. Don't wait any further. Don't wait any longer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Now, within the framework of premillennialism, you can see there that there are four major views within house. This is an in-house debate on premillennialism. Even within that, there are people who hold each of these four different views right even here in our church. And so those four views are as follows. There's the pre-tribulation rapture view. And that view holds that Jesus is going to rapture his church, coming to be with the Lord at the beginning of the tribulation, right when the tribulation begins. Then there are others who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. And that is that Jesus is going to rapture his church sometime in the middle of the, of the tribulation. Mid-tribulation, we have it right at this point, at the abomination of desolation, which we'll talk about here in a minute, right at the three-and-a-half-year point of the tribulation. Others are pre-wrath. What they would say is that Jesus is going to rapture his church before the wrath of God is poured out, whenever that might be during the tribulation. Typically during the last half of the tribulation is when they see that the Lord will rapture his church before typically the seven bowls of God's wrath from the book of Revelation are poured out. And then you have post-tribulation means after the tribulation that all of its one event, Jesus comes back, raptures his church, and then he comes and rules and reigns with his church. Now people in our church disagree over this, but what we do all agree on is this central fact, Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Now, I actually lean towards, as I said last week, towards the third view on that, but I would be thrilled if the entire tribulation was the wrath of God, and I'll high-five you on our way up, okay? And so it'll be fine. But, uh, but there's different views on that. Spurgeon actually held to view number four. Uh, the early church held to view number four as well. So you have different views on early church, meaning uh, after the apostles, the post-apostolic era. And so within that framework, what is this thing called the tribulation? And what is the great tribulation that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through verse 31? And how in the world do we apply something like this to our lives today? Those are the questions that I want to answer for you today. What is the great tribulation? How do we read this and get any application out of, our, out of it for our lives today? So this question, what is coming during the tribulation? What is coming during the tribulation era that is yet to appear? The tribulation is a seven-year period at the end of human history, this era of human history, right before the thousand-year reign of Christ where the depravity, the rebellion, the sinfulness of humanity will be on full display within the world. 
satanic forces which are now held back by the restraining power of the Holy Spirit will be let loose upon the world. They will be untethered. I do not believe that the Holy Spirit is removed from the world at that time because even pre-tribulationists believe that some people, many people in fact, are going to be saved in the time of the tribulation. The only time anybody ever gets saved is if the Spirit of Jesus Christ draws them. And so the drawing work of the Holy Spirit will still be active and working during that seven-year period. But what will not be happening is the restraining work of the Holy Spirit against evil, against Satan, against the Antichrist, and against the false prophet. All of those realities will be unleashed on the world in those seven years as humanity and a society reaps the evil that it has sown in that period of time. This evil trinity is coming forth on the world. This Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet will all be revealed during that time. Now, why do I keep saying seven years? As we say in Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And so, um, <laughs> and so why do I keep saying seven years? The reason why I keep saying seven years is this actually comes from a prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, you're going to have to put on your math thinking caps here for a moment. I know it's like, this is church, not math class. Okay, (laughs) just humor me for a little bit, and let's do a little bit of math together. This actually takes us back to the prophet Daniel and some prophecies that he made before Christ, helping us to understand what, why is it a seven-year period? In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, Daniel prophesies as follows. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. I long for that day (laughs) when those things are coming. When are they coming? He says it's going to be 70 weeks. If you were to read that in the original language, in the original Hebrew, it doesn't use the word weeks, it uses the word sevens. And so, literally, if you were to read this, it would be 77s. 77s are declared. Now, 77s, what does that mean? 77s worth of years is what the prophecy means. 77s worth of years. Now, now's where you need your math thinking cap. What is 70 times 7? 490. There we go. 490 years are declared from, well, when do we start the clock? Was it when Daniel was prophesying or was it sometime in the future? When does that 490 years begin? Well, we have to keep reading in the book of Daniel. If, if it's from the lifetime of Daniel, Daniel is prophesying around 540 B.C. But we know that's not the right time frame. That's not the right timeline. Read the very next verse. Verse 25 in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 says this, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So right there he says, here's when you start the clock. When you see the temple rebuilt, that is when you start the clock. Now, when did that happen? 
It did not happen during the time of Daniel. Daniel died. Remember Daniel was, how did Daniel get where he was? Daniel was in Jerusalem. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took God's people from Jerusalem and Judea into captivity. Daniel was one of them, as lo- along with uh, three guys whose name you know well, Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael, otherwise known as who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're more common, or they're, they're pagan names that they were given. All of them were taken in captivity to Babylon as the temple was destroyed. Now, from Babylon, Daniel's prophesying there's going to come a day when the temple is going to be rebuilt. It looks absolutely hopeless at that moment. Babylon, Babylonians are in charge. King Nebuchadnezzar is in charge. All of that is happening at this moment. Then, Daniel dies eventually another king that Daniel also prophesied comes along, destroys the Babylonians, destroys King Nebuchadnezzar. This guy is the king of the Persians. His name is King Artaxerxes. And in the year 445 BC, King Artaxerxes issues a decree that allows Jerusalem to be rebuilt. Start the clock. But Daniel says that it's going to be seven plus 62 weeks until the promise is fulfilled. That is, last time I checked my math, 62 plus seven is what? 69. 69. And so right there, 69 times seven is 483 years. Did you know it was exactly 483 years from the day that Artaxerxes made his decree that Jerusalem should be rebuilt 483 years exactly to the day when Jesus walked into rode into Jerusalem on the donkey when Jesus rode into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry it was exactly the amount of time that Daniel said it would be that is when Jesus is coming to bring restoration to his people Now, the problem. Daniel said there's going to be 70 weeks. We've only had 69. Where is the 70th week? Where is that last seven years? What we believe is that during this period of time, there has been a pause on the fulfillment of that last week. And when that clock will restart once again is during the time of the tribulation, during that last seven-year period of history right before the end. That's how we get the seven years. That's how we get Daniel's 70th week. It's prophesied as well in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says this, He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. That's the 70th week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering and the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed desolate destruction is poured out upon the desolator. He's talking about there the Antichrist coming in the end times to set up worship of himself in this rebuilt temple of God in Jerusalem and then ushering in the great tribulation, the last the, the very last of days. You can read more about this in Daniel chapter 12 and also Revolution, uh, Revolutions, yeah, Revolution, Revelations chapter, <laughs> chapter 13, the end of the Bible, Revelation 13. You can read more of it there. So this seven-year period of tribulation is a period that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 24. 
This is the time that Jesus is talking about when he talks about the abomination of desolation. He says the judgment on unbelieving man, on unbelieving humanity, will be intense and it will be fulfilled. The Bible uses several different phrases to describe this seven-year period that is coming. It describes it as the tribulation. It describes it as Daniel's 70th week. It describes it as the time of Jacob's trouble. And it describes it as the time of the Lord or the day of the Lord when God is going to judge humanity for its wickedness, for its sinfulness. And that's the time Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. And I want you to see two applications from this passage, Matthew 24. The first is this. Flee the false promises of Antichrist. Flee the false promises of Antichrist. Run from the false promises of Antichrist. In in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, Jesus is once again speaking telescopically concerning history. There's three different events that have happened. Two of them have already happened from our perspective in history. One of them has yet to come. Jesus is compressing all of these together into one prophetic voice, into one prophetic word here in Matthew 24. Those three events, the first one happened in 167 B.C., so before Christ. That was when Antiochus Epiphanes marched into Jerusalem, destroyed the city, marched into the temple, set up an altar of Zeus in the temple of God, in the very Holy of Holies, and sacrificed a pig on the altar, desecrating the altar. That happened in 167 B.C. It was a picture of the abomination of desolation that will happen in the end. Eventually, Herod rebuilds the temple and purifies the temple. It happens again after Jesus. So Jesus is preaching. He's doing this in about A.D. 33 or so, A.D. 30 to 33. And then in A.D. 70, Titus, Roman general, marches on Jerusalem, surrounds the cities. About a million Jews are killed. He marches into the temple of God. He sets up the standards, the flags of Rome within the temple of God. He declares in front of the altar that Caesar is now Lord. You must bow to him. And his army is then sacrificing pigs in the in the altar it happened in 8070 josephus historian wrote about it you can read josephus and read all about it and that's not only a picture of that but jesus is also saying these are but patterns to watch for what's coming in the end what's coming in the days ahead During the tribulation, Satan intends to present to the world his final masterpiece of deception. He's going to present to the world an antichrist, this individual who will present himself as a substitute for Jesus. Antichrist could mean against Christ, could mean a substitute for Christ. Someone who's pretending to be Christ. Someone who's conning everybody to have them believe that He will offer you and give you exactly what Jesus promises to give. In the end times, there is going to be this Antichrist who will be empowered by Satan and who will offer promises that only Jesus can really fulfill. He will set himself up as this false ruler of the world. He will be promising peace, peace, but will only be delivering false hope in the end. 
the instrument whom Satan will empower and through whom he will work in this time is described in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. If you're reading the book of Revelation and you come across this character called the beast in the book of Revelation, that's what it's talking about. He's talking about the Antichrist. He's talking about this figure who is going to be coming in the end of times, at the end of the age. This one will seek to imitate the rule of Christ and seek to imitate the power of Christ and seek to promise the whole world what only Jesus can deliver. What should we be looking for in the rule of the Antichrist? He will have political power that will extend over all of the earth. He will establish a global government ruling over the world. He will establish a global religion. One religion. Everybody's following the same God anyway. We're just all climbing up different hills of the same mountain. And we'll all just meet at the top and find out. We were all just taping, taking different pathways to worship the same God. That will be the promise and the preaching of the Antichrist in the end. Everybody will be rolling around with their coexist bumper stickers, right? <laughs> There is just one real religion that will promise everyone. Not only there will be a global government, there will be a global religion, but there will be a global economy. We can see the seeds of how all of this is beginning to happen in our society. Technology enabling this in tremendous ways today. We can see in the world how all of this is being set up even as we gather here today. This Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in the world today, as he says in the book of 1 John and 2 John. This will be an individual who embody all of these values in the end times. He will seem to be the answer to everybody's hope and dreams. He'll be the answer to wars and rumors of wars. Be the one to sign and figure out peace in the Middle East. He'll figure out the answer to famine. He'll figure out the answer to disease. He'll figure out the answer to all of the world's problems. And will seem like the politician that the whole world has been longing for. And yet, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul says to the church this word, Do not let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness, another name of the Antichrist, is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. That is what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 24. That is the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist will fool everybody and then he'll be a subtle switch. You must worship me. He will declare himself. The only reason I've been able to do all of this peace, all of this prosperity, all of this solution to all of the global problems is because I am the ruler of all. You should worship me. That is the abomination of desolation that is coming on the world. He will require worship that is due to Christ alone. He will actually require the worship of the state. The worship of the state. And you can see that happening right in front of us. Even people who claim to know Christ are beginning this subtle transition to where they are trusting in the government to give what only God can give. That brings us to our application. How in the world do we apply this crazy sermon <laughs> that unfortunately doesn't get talked about much today, amen? 
gosh, we need to hear a lot more of this kind of preaching today. <laughs> what in the world's coming? I'm thankful for Scott. It's really hard to find a song about the abomination of desolation. But, um, <laughs> but we can find things about Jesus is coming again. <laughs> so how do we apply this? Let me give you some applications, then we'll get into point two, and we'll be done. As believers here in the United States, in our context, we must engage in politics. We must engage in the political system and have a voice speaking into the system. Why? Because we are fortunate enough in this context to live in a nation that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. And because of that reality, we, it is incumbent upon us who hold the power of the ballot box and the power of the sword to make sure that whoever we give the power of the sword to is the people who will rule and reign rightly. However, this is the point. When we expect the government to be our savior, that is the essence of Antichrist. When you expect the government to deliver what only Jesus can give, that is the essence of Antichrist. When you're trusting in the government and basically saying, my government shall supply all of my needs according to its riches in the treasury, that is the spirit which will lead you away from trusting in God alone and trusting in an economy or a government or a president to supply for your needs. And I would say this, both left and right are in danger of doing this. Both left and right are in danger of trusting in a man or an organization to give you what only God, and different pathways to get there, <laughs> different hopes, different trusts, but trusting in that system, whether you live in the United States or Azerbaijan or Ethiopia, wherever you live, but trusting in that to deliver only what God can give you is a very dangerous path to be on. And we see that happening in so many different ways. Jesus says, when you see this, he said, when you see these kinds of things happening, he says to the disciples, flee this. The Christians of the first century took that literally. In fact, when Titus is marching on Jerusalem, surrounds the cities, guess who gets out? <laughs> the Christians get out because <laughs> they believe the prophecy of Jesus and they say, it's time, let's, let's go. <laughs> and Josephus actually writes about it. It was the Christians who fled to the mountains, believing in the prophecy of Jesus. It's interesting enough, flee these philosophies of the day. How else do we apply this? Possessions and self-reliance cannot save. Only Jesus can save. Possessions and self-reliance cannot save. Only Jesus can save. Jesus says, don't go back in the house and get your cloak. If you're out in the field, don't be running back to the house to get your stuff. It's time to trust in Jesus and him alone. Your stuff will not save you. Your bank account will not save you. Your ingenuity will not save you. Your intellect will not save you. Your wisdom will not save you. Only Jesus can save you. And so we as the people of God must be very careful that we only trust in our Christ to save us. Only he can save in the book of John, Jesus uses the same word that he uses in verse 21. In verse 21, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus calls this the great distress or the great tribulation. It's the word thlipsis, thlipsis in the original language. He uses the same word in the book of John when Jesus says, in this world you will have much thlipsis. 
In this world, talking to Christians, he's saying, in this world, you will have much tribulation. But what does Jesus also say right after that? Same sentence. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In the middle of this world, whether you face lowercase t tribulation or capital T tribulation, regardless of which one it is, Jesus is your answer. Jesus is the solution. Only Jesus can deliver. And so trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what suffering you are enduring. And don't trust in the government and don't trust in self-reliance. Third application, beware of shortcuts to comfort and deliverance. Jesus said in this passage that there will be false prophets and false teachers that will be promising all kinds of false messiahs and false hopes. Look, Jesus is over here. Just send your money to X ministry, right? (laughs) This is the way that it works so often today. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by false promises and false Jesuses and false teachings. Only trust in the gospel. Trust in the scripture. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's going to be very difficult in the end times because Jesus says that these false teachers are even going to be demonically empowered, producing signs and wonders to deceive many. But their rule and their effect will not last forever. That brings us to point two, and this is what I want to leave us with. I want to leave us with some good news. Amen? There's some really bad news there. Let's get some good news. Number two, live in anticipation of the return of the king. Live in anticipation of the return of the king. Jesus is coming again. While the world's going to get really difficult for a season, it's not always going to be that way. Your life right now might be very difficult for a season. It's not always going to be that way. Jesus is coming again. He's going to set up His kingdom, and He's going to deliver in all of the ways that the false Messiah, that the Antichrist, never could. And He's going to judge all of that, and He's going to set up His righteous rule of perfection in the world. Long, long for that day. Believers who hang on to the end will be greatly rewarded. That's the promise of Jesus in verses 27 through verse 31. He says, when he returns at his coming, at his second coming, it's not going to be like it was when he came the first time. When he came the first time, it was angel choirs. It was a few shepherds abiding in their fields, watching over their flocks by night. And only a few people saw it. When Jesus comes again, Jesus says, everybody's going to know. Everybody's going to see it. And he says, as lightning is visible, that strikes in the east is visible even in the west, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. It's going to be like if lightning strikes the Columbia River. You can see it in Pasco and you can see it in West Richland. You can see it. Everybody's going to be able to see and know. He says that the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the clouds of heaven. What is that? Jesus doesn't say. (laughs) He doesn't say what it is. And it doesn't say in the Scripture. Early church taught, the early church fathers taught, that it would be the sign of the cross that will appear in the sky. We don't know. They were making that up. We don't know. (laughs) The answer is the Bible doesn't say, but it will be unmistakable that Jesus has come. 
that Jesus is coming again. And those who are longing for His appearing will be rejoicing and they will come with Him riding on the clouds of heaven coming to set up His kingdom. And from that day forward, He will rule and reign forever and ever. He says, though, that some people will be mourning His appearing. Who's going to be mourning when Jesus appears? Those who will have this ever echo in their minds. I wish I would have. That is the forever echo of regret of those who do not long for his appearing and forever will be having this refrain go in their souls. I wish I did. I wish I would have. The alternative to that is seen in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. Where he says, there is reserved, Paul is saying at the end of his life, there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. I ask you one question. Do you long for his appearing? I do. Do you long for his coming? I want to challenge you. Have you gotten to the point where you'd be fine if he didn't appear anytime soon? Because you love this world so much. You love the things of this world so much. And I get, the, I, get the, I get it that if there's somebody that you know that you love, family that does not yet know Christ as Savior and Lord, you, you want them to be saved first. I don't totally understand that. But there's a sense in which we should long to see Jesus. And the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of His glorious grace. And my challenge for your introspection and your soul searching today is do you long for his appearing? Do you long for the coming of your king so you can see him face to face and that he will establish his rule and his reign in this world? I want to end today with a quote from C.S. Lewis. One of his books is called The Last Battle. It's actually in the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've never read it, I commend it to you. Not a perfect book. It's only one perfect book, but it's a really good book. <laughs> in The Last Battle, he's given an allegory of the end times in that particular book. And the way that book ends is just incredible. I don't want to share that with you. He says the following. He says, now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever which every chapter is better than the one before. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's spend a moment in silence and reflection and we'll pray and we'll respond. Lord, we come before you today, and Lord, we thank you for these words that you gave us, these teachings that you gave us to help us to long for your appearing. And Lord, I pray for each of us, Lord, that our believers in this room, that you would help us more and more to long for your appearing and to trust only you to deliver what only you can give. 
And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live in light of your appearing as well. And Lord, I pray for those who, either in this room or online, Lord, I pray for those that do not yet know you as their treasure, as Lord and Savior, as their deliverer, as their only ruler and king. Lord, I pray that they would trust in you as Savior and Lord, believing that it is Jesus who died on the cross and rose again from the grave. And he is the one who is coming again to set all things right. Lord, I pray you would help them to believe and to trust in you, to trust in you as Savior and Lord. And Lord, I pray for them and all of us that we would not mourn at your appearing, but we would long for your appearing and rejoice at your coming and say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to live in light of your appearing. Lord, bless this time of response. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.